Quitting smoking requires willpower, but we could all use a little help sometimes. Nicorette's Stop Smoking products increase your chances of quitting smoking by up to 60% versus unaided. Clinically proven to help you quit for good. Nicorette contains nicotine. Stop smoking aid. Requires willpower. Always read the label. Welcome to I'll Start Monday, the practical self-help podcast where we dig into issues that affect us all and seek out useful advice to help you make positive changes to your life starting Monday. This week, we're looking at the science behind addiction, focusing on cigarettes, and we're joined by neuroscientist Dr. Sabina Brennan and a former smoker, Marion Potts. Dr. Brennan joined us a couple of years ago on our very first season of the show when we had a fascinating conversation about boosting brain health. She's a health psychologist, neuroscientist, author of the best-selling book Beating Brain Fog and host of the Super Brain podcast. Marion is a former radio producer joining us from Donegal. She recently won her battle against cigarettes with the help of the HSE Quit program and has since shared her inspirational story in the hope that others can do the same. Welcome to the show to both of you. We'll start with yourself, Sabina. Yeah, I, I suppose I've always been fascinated by human behaviour and, uh, you know, the brain and why we do things and why we make the choices we make and why we repeat the same mistakes. And do you know what? In a way, tracking back, I guess I first explored it through acting, because for me, that was about stepping inside someone else's head, someone else's shoes and, and imagining their backstory and why they behaved in a particular way and want what influenced um, how how they behaved. So, um, yeah, then I I, I I did act in soap and then I, um, I studied psychology as a mature student and really got more and more fascinated by the link between the brain and human behavior. So I got a scholarship to do a PhD at the Institute of Neuroscience in Trinity College, Dublin. And so following on from that, then I directed a dementia research program there for several years with all mainly research relating to Alzheimer's disease, dementia, brain health. And yeah, now really, to be honest, my focus is... I just feel very strongly, particularly with neuroscientific research, because it's so recent and such a huge explosion. Um, the findings from science don't necessarily get uh, translated for the general public. And I kind of just feel uh, compelled to do that. And, and, and I think our brain is our most important organ and people know very little about it. So, um, yeah. And I think it's fascinating, you know, everybody has a brain. So we're yeah. all interest. I'm always talking about you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, exactly. You're always talking about everybody all the time when you're talking about the brain. Could you tell me a little bit, I know we're here to talk about addiction, but with regards to Alzheimer's and those, I'm going to say those types of brain diseases that we see and I know... Neuro neurodegenerative. Yeah, they would be yeah. called neurodegenerative. The, the, you know, it, it's the brain is degenerating. Yeah. Where are we, where are we at with those and, and the causes and the cures and are we, are we any further? Do we understand them anymore? Yeah, we do. We do. We understand them. And actually, there's even been changes since I spoke to you last. So um, we know what the hallmarks are within the brain. So uh, beta amyloid plaques and there's other tangles in the brain, but nobody knows what causes those, you know, to, to happen. But what we do know and what's really kind of 
positive is that we have identified 12 modifiable risk factors. So essentially, they're sort of lifestyle factors, things that you can do something about. And if we could eradicate those risk factors, we could get rid of, you know, potentially 40% of all cases of Alzheimer's disease. So there's currently 50 million people living with Alzheimer's disease. So that would be getting rid of about 20 million people's suffering in terms of that. And actually, smoking is one of the risk factors. So if you ever wanted a reason to give up smoking, it's to reduce your risk of developing dementia. And, you know, that's interesting in terms of the relationship between smoking and the brain. The smoking doesn't necessarily diminish your cognitive functioning, but it um, it's really bad for your cardiovascular health and your brain needs a, a healthy cardiovascular system to get the oxygen and nutrients that it needs to survive. It also deprives the brain of oxygen um, and, you know, it's putting toxins into your brain and your brain is very vulnerable to toxins. Um, and, you know, because smoking impacts on your cardiovascular health, it's also related to some other risk factors um, associated, you know, with uh, higher risk for dementia, you know. Okay. Could you give me some, quickly give me some examples of those other risk factors? Yes, 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 of course I can. Uh, low levels of physical activity, um, excess alcohol consumption, depression, type 2 diabetes, midlife hypertension, uh, midlife obesity, uh, social isolation. Uh, there's some air toxins, uh, low levels of education, midlife hearing loss, and oh yeah acquired brain injury so if you've had a brain injury at some point I think that's the 12 actually well, well remembered and is the low level education to do with socioeconomic reasons yeah yeah no that's a very interesting one because that's a, quite a strong um, uh, relationship and quite a strong risk factor and anybody listening don't panic you know if you left school at 12 or 15 or you, you know because that was the initial sort of feeling gosh low level people with lower levels of education have uh, an increased risk. As you just sort of alluded to, those low levels of education predict health behaviors, etc. You know, the more education you have, the more likely you are to look after your health, the more likely you are to exercise. There's those factors as well. But also it's about mental stimulation. So that's where the flip side, the positive side is, is learning, lifelong learning, not academic learning. It doesn't have to be anytime you learn anything it promotes neuroplasticity in the brain. And that's fundamentally the key to brain health. So when your brain learns, it grows new connections. And really what you want when it comes to something like Alzheimer's disease is as much healthy brain as you can, as much connections as you possibly can, because um, it's about, we can't cure the disease, but we can change the trajectory of the disease. If you build a healthy brain, it means you've more healthy brain to cope with the impact of that disease. Um, ultimately, there comes a time where the disease will overcome the healthy brain, but you've actually changed the trajectory in that you've pushed out the time until you experience symptoms. You can continue living normally. So a key factor for everyone but especially if you left school uh, early or didn't go to university or don't have a particularly mentally stimulating job is to engage in mentally stimulating activities. That can be, you know, playing a musical instrument, learning carpentry, learning a new language. It doesn't have to be academic, but it does require novelty, 
doing something new. That's where the learning arises. And I wish there was another word for learning because it's got so many negative connotations with school and learning off by heart. And, and that's not what the true meaning of it is. It's encountering your brain, encountering something new and having to grow new connections in order to learn how to do that. So opening a new door for the first time is learning in a sense, you know. I'd imagine acting would be a great thing for neuroplasticity and growing new pathways then if you're, you know, if you're learning, trying to become a different character every day or every few months or whatever, you know. Yeah, I, ne- I never thought about that. It certainly helped me, which is really funny. It really helped me when I went to university because I think, and again, I'm passionate about saying to people, uh, lifelong learning is key and don't be afraid about going to university. I left school at 16 and went to university at 42 and discovered that actually I could be good at that. I was terrified going in because, um, you know, you have to get high points to to uh, study psychology. And I thought all these whiz kids would show me up, but they have no life experience. They've no experience solving problems, raising kids. Um, you know, all those things really do add up. And if you pick a, sub- a subject that you love, it's so much easier to learn. And that something happens in your brain, actually, if you're if you're interested or naturally curious about something, neuroplasticity is enhanced. So it's actually easier for you to learn something that you like. And then if you have to study something that you don't particularly like, what you do is something that you really like, because the extra neuroplasticity sort of lasts for an extra bit of time. (laughs) So it'll make it easier for you to learn uh, the next thing. But um, yeah, what I would, my roundabout way was when you were linking acting was actually we used to record five episodes a week. Uh, I used to work on Fair City. So um, I would have to learn my scripts for the week, you know, at the start of the week. So that meant when I went to university, I could write essays in advance for exams and just learn them off by heart. That's why I sort of say as well, exams in university are more tests of memory skills as opposed to tests of how clever you are or, or, or anything like that. Of course, you have to write a good answer in the first place, but yeah. a long-winded link to acting. <laughs> well, it's very good. It's very good. Uh, it's good to know these things. And you you know, it's, it, it's always important and we hear it a lot, you know, as you get older, learn a new language, uh, try something new and you see people changing careers as you did and all that kind of stuff. It's all yeah. don't ever stop. Don't ever stop learning. Don't ever stop no. trying new things, putting yourself in different situations. Um, tell us about the neuroscience and what it teaches us then about addiction. Yeah. So we have sort of the brain has an inbuilt uh, reward system. And from an evolutionary perspective, that has evolved by rewarding us when we engage in behaviors that keep us well. So it's rewarding to eat. It's rewarding to drink water. You, you feel pleasure when you have sex, you know, all of those kind of things. So basically what happens is when you engage in those behaviors, uh, the reward system in the brain, the reward and pleasure systems in the brain are activated and you get a release of dopamine. So you kind of get, you get a bit of a high. It's, you know, it, it's um, not as intense as a cocaine high, but, you know, you, you get a high. It's a natural high. And basically, um, if you smoke, for example, a couple of other things are kind of activated when you, when you smoke, you know, it acts on actually 
cholinergic receptors in your brain, and then they actually facilitate the re- release of dopamine. Uh, and it produces pleasure and you feel stimulated. Often people will smoke. To, oh, no, no, no. Need a cigarette to think about this. And um, also mood. People will, you know, it can help help you manage your mood. And then basically what happens is what's called neuroadaptation. Um, because you're repeatedly exposed to the drug of nicotine, um, you become tolerant as you would sort of with alcohol and other drugs. Um, and so you kind of need a bit more to get the same sort of hit. And then if you stop smoking, um, you'll get nicotine withdrawal symptoms. You'll be irritable. Uh, you might feel anxious. Uh, you'll eat more. That's unpleasant. So, you know, that's the thing with indic- addiction. Sort of initially, it's, it can be to get the pleasure, but over time it actually, actually can be to stop the unpleasant feelings if that makes sense you kind of get a bit of both Mm. um and then of course with smoking uh, and that's one of the challenges with giving up smoking and i'm an ex-smoker myself um and i've stopped smoking more than 25 years ago but um it's also reinforced by conditioning so what that means is basically if you and i remember it i were years ago i worked in an office when i smoked so every time i had to call a client I would light a cigarette first. These were the days when you could smoke at your desk in offices and things. So I'd light a cigarette and then do the call. Or if a friend says to me, wait till I tell you what happened, I'd say, stop, stop, hold it, wait till I like a cigarette because it'll give an extra buzz to the story. Um, and, you know, people have different times of the day or different emotions when they smoke. So, so then actually what's happening is you're being cued to have a cigarette by something in the environment. So you kind of have that kind of habit going on. So, uh, yeah, it's complicated and it's not that easy to give up. And in fact, I think that's one of the, one of the things about it is because I failed several times before I finally quit and I was always off the cigarettes and you see, then your brain is just waiting to know when, well, when are we going back on Mm, the cigarettes? Do you know? Whereas if you say I quit, don't smoke, don't like it, you know, replace activities, etc. you know, with what you did when you were smoking. Are there physical things happening to, like if you were to look, slice the brain and we were able to like, you know, open the head, whatever, slice, look at it as, as, yeah. as the addiction is forming. And then as we give up, like, can, would you see it re, um, like regrowing areas or reproducing certain things like do bits die off and then grow back if you give up do you know what I mean what's happening physically yeah yeah no so so basically yeah physically so so that's kind of what's happening you know in the processes the dopamine and the processes behind why you get addicted to them and and what the drug nicotine um, does but there is research where they've looked at the cortices so that's the outer layer of your brain the the crinkly bit uh, that you kind of tend to think of of the brain. And basically they found that those are thinner in smokers than in non-smokers. Okay. So that's not good. If, if you think that I just said in terms of Alzheimer's disease, you want more healthy brain. So you want more connection. So basically you'll have heard people talk about gray matter and white matter. So the gray matter in your brain are your brain cells. And you've 86 billion of those. And then the white matter is the connection between those brain cells. And you want as much of those as possible. And so obviously there's some sort of atrophy happening as a consequence of smoking, uh, which, you know, atrophy means that 
cells are dying off. So if your cortis is thinner, um, that indicates that. Uh, and basically, it, it, it actually destroying smoking, destroying the gray matter. And it's really important because that part of your brain is responsible for thinking skills. So things like memory, learning, uh, processing visual information, processing auditory information, expressing yourself in language. So, um, yeah, I mean, there is atrophy of the brain naturally, actually from about the age of 30. Um, but adopting a brain healthy lifestyle can prevent that sort of atrophy happening um so adopting a brain healthy lifestyle would definitely help in that regard with regard to the cortex sort of regrowing or recovering um there was some research and basically what they had looked at was um looked at someone who'd who'd smoked 20 cigarettes a day for just under 27 years you know that basically then it took about 25 years for complete recovery of the cortex. So it is a long time, but I was just thinking about this before coming on. You know, I've hit that 25 years now, do, do, do you know? Mm. So, uh, and, and you have to understand, it's not going to be, you know, my cortex is thinner and then you wait 25 years and now it's back to normal. It's going to be getting better all the time. And it really is never too late, you know, and the quality of your life changes immensely. Um, you know, it really does. Yeah, totally. So we can get back onto the brain health as well. I want to talk a little bit now to Marion. Um, Marion, could you share with us a little bit about your background, how long you smoked and why you quit? Well, I started at 13 and uh, continued smoking until I was 27. And then I started having children, so that was a good enough reason to give up. And I found it quite easy, you know, because I was thinking about my children at the time. Yeah. Do you remember a moment where, like, was there something about the smoking? Was it before you had the children? Was it when the children were a certain age? Like, could you pinpoint that moment? Yeah, well, I had one child. Um, the first child to have five children. He was only a year old, and I was worried about, you know, the health issues and how it would be affecting him by me smoking more regarding my children's health. And so that was a good enough reason to stop smoking and the damage that I would have been doing, you know, the passive smoking to my kids. Mm. Um, I was living in an old damp house and, um, you know, he was having chest infections, I was having chest infections. So obviously I had to rule out the cigarettes. Um, it was yeah. easy because I was young and I had children to think about, you know, my mother does, thinks about their kids. And then that was fine. Then from I was 27, I had, was off the cigarettes for 24 years. Doing fantastic. Absolutely hated smoking. Hated anybody smoking near me. I uh, was totally sure I would never smoke for the rest of my life. I um, had no doubt at all. And then in 2014, I lost my dad in the February. And then in July, I lost my oldest brother, Bernard. And then eight, week, eight weeks after that, I lost my other brother, Branton. So I had three deaths within seven months. Half my family wiped out, more or less. 
and the stress took over my brain and I forgot all the reasons why I had gave up the cigarettes because I was in so much grief and obviously my daughter just landed in with her tobacco and it was sitting up on top of the fireplace and that voice came into my head I sure just have a cigarette who cares now just have a cigarette and I never took it that night I waited a few nights but that was the voice was back in my head after 24 years and uh, I rolled a cigarette and that was me back on the road again just the same addiction just as bad you know I would wake up in the middle of the night when I was smoking you know I was highly addicted waking up in the middle of the night having a cigarette first thing in the morning before even a coffee a cigarette continuously smoking you know it was like being in a jail constantly I was smoking roll-ups just took up so much in my mind um, during the day between getting the roll-up papers getting the tobacco getting the tips going through the whole process rolling them up smoking them just constantly thinking about always there and back in that situation for um, six years and then well, I was trying to give them up again I went off them for five months and I went cold turkey I thought right okay I've done it cold turkey the last time so I'm just going to do it the same it was completely different um, just kept thinking about them at the same time um, my willpower wasn't as strong and um, I just knew it was a matter of time so within five months I was back on them again. And then this went on for, say, another two years. And I went to the doctor, terrible chest infection. And my mother and my brother, both had COPD, duty smoking. And the doctor had said to me, Marion, I'd be concerned. You might have COPD or, you know. So she says to me, I want you to come back in five weeks' time. Can we do the test? And that was a real wake-up call for me, you know. Um, I just thought, I have to get off these things. And I thought, how am I going to do it this time? Because I really struggled in the five months. It was completely different from the first time. And I'd seen the HSE had a, a quick group. And I was just on the computer that night and I was reading through it saying, oh, this, maybe this might help me, this might be the way, you know, be a group of people, be support, etc. Um, just press the button and see how it goes. Don't think about it, just press the button. And then obviously the addiction was like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? You're not giving me up, you know. You're going to stick with me. You're not going to do this. And the million and one excuses that was going through in my brain of how I wasn't going to give up. And um, I thought, right, okay, I will just press the button, so we'll be fine, light another cigarette. And then the following day, um, I got an email to ask me would I join the group. And obviously the alarm bell was the addiction because I was so highly addicted to the cigarettes. And was like, no, you can't do that. Constantly doubting me all the time. And I thought, right, baby steps, just baby steps. Just reply to the email and say, yeah, okay, I'll take part, you know, you know. So 
I did. And reluctantly, as I say, but at the same time, the healthy mind was saying to me, you must do this and you must attempt it. And um, then I started the HSE group. It was at the time of COVID and we were doing a live stream. And it was fantastic because there was, there was no pressure on anybody to stop smoking. It was only a matter of coming to the, the chat. We'll have a discussion and see how you feel. No pressure to give up. But in the first group, they were saying, well, look, set yourself a target two or three weeks' time whenever you feel, you know, you, you could be ready to do this. So obviously I thought, right, okay, everybody else is doing this. I need to set myself a, a group or a, a date and um, set the date. And obviously the addiction in the back of my head's like, this isn't going to happen. You know, you're, you're going to keep smoking. And it closer to the date, and obviously the pressure was on me. And that's the hardest time. That's the hardest mentally is leading up to it. And um, the date came and I said to myself, wait, one day at a time. Don't put any pressure on yourself. One day at a time. And started that first day. And this time now I went for help. Uh, it was, we obviously had the group support. Also, I actually went to my chemist, who was really helpful, and spoke to him, and he told me about all the Nicorette replacement therapy that's out there to support me, especially whenever you're so stressed, you know, when I was trying to do it cold turkey, etc. So I says, yeah, I'll try that, give me everything, I've got the patches, got the spray, got the chewing gum, got the whole lot, and I says, right, okay, so I'll use this on my journey. I started with the patches, um, and I was doing the chewing gum, and then I actually started doing the, the Nicorette spray, and uh, it was fantastic. I, I honestly, I've sailed through it. I'm off in 14 months. Amazing. There's so much there to sort of unpack, but um, one of the things that struck me was um, obviously the, the group of people together, and then... I'd imagine the fact that you joined the group and then there was no real pressure, like nobody was telling you to give up. That was kind of left to yourself. I'd say if you'd gone in there like for the first meeting or if you were on the Zoom, you know, for the first meeting and it was like, OK, we need to give up now. You'd, you'd nearly run away, wouldn't you? It was almost like that. There was no pressure. It was like whenever you set the date, um, obviously there was a bit of pressure in the lead up to it. But that sounds like a really kind of... Uh, I'd imagine that was good for you to go in there and go, okay, so no one's going to tell me when to give up. It's kind of up to me. Oh, definitely. That that's that was why it worked. Um, there was no pressure. I think if there was pressure when people, look, you're starting this group and you need to be off cigarettes, a lot of people would fail because um, you have to set that date yourself. You have to, it's you that's given up the addiction. You'd be gone. You'd be bolted. And obviously the, the patches and um, the NRT have been helping you since, which is great because I, I suppose having them there with you, you're not, uh, you know, as you said, like you have the gum, but you don't use them all the time just when you really need them. But just going back to the grief, I mean, nobody would have, like, how could you even almost deny yourself having a, a cigarette, having gone through all of that stuff. Like, we only have a certain amount of willpower. Everybody only has a certain amount of willpower. And when you're dealing with all that grief, like, you know, as you said, you're mo a lot of your family kind of wiped out within the space of, you know, in under a year. Very hard to fight doing something that you really want to do 
when so much of your so much of your energy is going through just getting through the day, you know, and then you're like, okay, I need, it's almost like a medication then. I need something to help me get through the day. So like very understandable that you, you started smoking then. It would be very hard to, to find the willpower to fight that in a situation like that. Yeah, totally. But what I find is um, you use the cigarettes or you use whatever you're using for, for addictive reasons to cope. But through time, the grief lifts and you're left with the addiction. Mm. So it's a false um, aid. Yeah. I've had thought about that before I started. (laughs) I've already started again. Oh, sure. Or maybe I've not even taken that into consideration. I'd say in this, in your your state of mind at the time would have been very hard to think about anything clearly. Do you know what I mean? And and hindsight is twenty twenty vision, as they say. Listen, we're kind of um, coming to the end of it, Sabina. Just um, with regards to Marion and you know what she was going through. I mean, to have given up for twenty four years, but you could totally understand, you know, what happened then and how she relapsed and started smoking again. But also, I don't know if there's is there a scientific thing behind that because Marion really described well that conversation between the addiction and the person oh yeah yeah uh, absolutely absolutely and so much of what she was saying resonated with me I think I was probably a worse addict than you if we start playing the game of worse because I didn't give up when I had my kids and uh, shame to say that I smoked during my pregnancies also um which is absolutely appalling I can't believe that I was that person but the thing is okay so habitual behavior is fundamental to our survival Okay, and it's from a brain perspective. Uh, The brain is a very high energy organ and it uses um, it has to make efficient use of the available resources, which would be the oxygen and the nutrients uh, that you have. So what it does to do this is very clever. It constantly scans your behavior for routines and patterns that it can automate Okay, and basically that outer crinkly cortex that we were talking about that's involved in thinking and memory and all those things that make us very human uh, uses much more energy than other parts of the brain. And basically what the brain can do is take a pattern of behavior, a sequence, a routine (laughs) and hand over responsibility for that to a part of the brain called the basal ganglia, which is in the limbic brain, which is a very old part of the brain that also houses your amygdala and your fear centers. So it's unconscious and requires uh, much less energy. So that's really good because if we had to think about everything we were doing all the time, which is kind of in a way what happened during the pandemic when routines were just wiped out, People had to think about, when am I going to get dressed? When when do I need to shower? When do I homeschool? Routines were out of the way. Most people develop brain fog, whether they had COVID or not. They couldn't understand why they were doing so little and couldn't actually concentrate and do stuff in their job that they did with these before. And that's because they had no routines, no habitual behavior. Their cerebral cortex was using all of its energy to make decisions. Now, That's really, really important. But the brain doesn't make any value judgment about that routine behavior, just looks for routine, which is why a lot of us developed alcohol habits during the pandemic also, because it was probably the only routine that we were doing was, you know, each night opening a bottle or whatever. Um, The brain doesn't draw a distinction between whether the habit is healthy or unhealthy or helpful or unhelpful or speaks to your goals. It just wants to save energy. 
Now, a habit can be changed. It can be suppressed. It can be replaced with another healthy habit, but it never goes away. Okay. And that makes sense because let's say you learn how to tie your shoelace, very, very high energy effort, you know, as you're learning the act, then it becomes habitual. You don't have to uh, you don't have to think about it. You can just do it. Uh, you go on holidays, you live in sandals for six months, you come back. It wouldn't make any sense for you to have to learn how to tie your shoes again. So you can just reactivate that habitual behavior. So that's why it kind of makes sense. Now, the thing that we know about habits that have been replaced or, you know, and particularly highly addictive ones is that you are more likely to relapse during times of stress and when you have disrupted sleep. So that is exactly what happened um, in, in, in your case, you know, horrific stress. And basically your brain goes, well, this is what I did for stress, <laughs> you know, and smoke the cigarette. I would suggest, and I, I hope I'm not overestimating um, your age, but adding up all the numbers you said, probably at that time you may have been perimenopausal or menopausal. And that means that has that. The, in addition to the stress um, the changes in progesterone that occur in that period of our lives as women uh, disrupts our sleep. So if you also have broken sleep and terrible stress and the grief alone probably would break your sleep as well, you're more likely to fall back on those habits. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that you did, as you said. Um, the other thing I just that jumped out at me, I kind of took a, t a few notes because I started, I had my first cigarette, I think I was 12. You said you started at 13. And that's one I think that's really important um, is that the teenage brain is very different to a, an adult brain. And between puberty and the age of 24, it goes through a complete radical transformation. It is literally rebuilt from back to front. And the frontal lobes are the last part to be, um, they're the last part of the brain as humans to have evolved, but also the last part of the brain to fully develop. And that's the part of the brain that can help us assess risk or, you know, impulse, it's involved in impulse control as well. In addition, they're more vulnerable to addiction. When we're teens, we are more vulnerable to that whole addiction process. Uh, and so a lot of teens are doing it to cope with these changes in their moods and, and what they're experiencing, etc. So the teen years and right up to 24 are, is the time when we are most vulnerable to um, addiction. And that includes, you know, cigarettes, alcohol, other drugs, and things like social media, etc. So it's a very vulnerable, uh, very vulnerable time. And you will find with a lot of people, that's when they started smoking. What chance have we got, lads? What chance have we got at all? <laughs> um, Marion, I'll go back to you very briefly before we wrap up. What advice would you give to someone looking to quit smoking starting Monday? Marion? Well, I would say go for it and take baby steps. Don't put any pressure in yourself. Take it day by day. Definitely give it a chance because a smoker's brain, you know, you're in a jail, you're in a prison. The addiction's there constantly. So you've actually, you've, you've nothing to lose, absolutely nothing to lose because living that life with the addiction of cigarettes or whatever type of addiction is a hell so, and you'll have a million and one excuses by the addictive mind telling you to give up. So I feel you've, you've absolutely nothing to lose and absolutely everything to gain. Everything to gain. 
Yeah, and I think what, the way you described how you just clicked that button on the website and that was that was it. If you just click the button, then. And That's it. I've never done that. I'm going to ask you the same question, Sabina. What would you say to anybody listening now that they can do on Monday? Yeah, I would say that Marion said take it day by day. Uh, I would say take it minute by minute um, and don't be thinking too far ahead. You know, you know, say I don't smoke. I hate them. The craving actually won't last very long. So just deal with each you know, sort of craving as it comes, um, you know, things like tricks like brushing your teeth or having minty gum or something. If you if you have that craving, I think uh, seek support if you feel you need it. And, you know, um, those pharmacotherapies, you know, the nic- nicotine or working with groups or, or you know, whatever you think uh, will do it. I think also what some people forget is that, you know, you're looking for a form of high from cigarette smoking, you know, because you're getting a hit from it. So I would suggest, you know, go on and, and, and seek opportunities for a natural high. You know, is there something else that you can do that gives you a natural high? So you get a natural high after running. Now, I'm not saying, you know, go running, but you can get a natural high after dancing. You get a natural high after achieving something uh, or spending time with people. So schedule, you know, schedule more of those pleasurable things into your life where you have this chance of actually getting a buzz out of life rather than a buzz out of cigarettes. Great advice there. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Dr. Sabina Brennan and Marion Potts. And uh, enjoy the weekend and I hope you have a lovely Monday. We'll, we'll talk to you again. Quitting smoking requires willpower, but we could all use a little help sometimes. Nicorette's Stop Smoking products increase your chances of quitting smoking by up to 60% versus unaided. Clinically proven to help you quit for good. Nicorette contains nicotine. Stop smoking aid. Requires willpower. Always read the label.